my name is Justin Carlson. Uh, I'm the Director of Worship and Arts here, and uh, Marshall's mini-me. Um, not really. We don't look anything alike. But um, uh, about once or twice a year, uh, I get the privilege uh, of preaching, and I'm very grateful uh, to be with you this evening. We are going to be uh, in Psalm 16 tonight, and as Robert said, next week we're going to be uh, beginning a four-week series uh, in the book of Jonah. It's from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite books um, is The Road. It's a book by um, Cormac McCarthy. And uh, it's a story that tells of a father and a son on a journey through the chaos of a post-apocalyptic world. And if you're familiar with McCarthy at all, he is not one to romanticize his stories by any means. And this is certainly not the familiar story of, of self-discovery. And it's certainly not romanticized. Uh, it's a story of survival. And with each step of this father and son along the vacant roads of a scorched landscape, they're confronted with the threat of hopelessness and even more the threat of death. It's cold, it's dark, it's empty, and no one can be trusted. And there's this unrelenting fear that every man they encounter is an enemy. And it seems as if hope is nothing more than an unnecessary burden they have to carry. Nothing more than an illusion. So realizing they can't survive another winter, struggling along an abandoned highway in search of warmth of life, we do find evidence of life. And where we find life and where we find hope is in the relationship between the Father and the Son. And this is a, a short excerpt uh, from their interaction. And as my son would say, Dad, please read in your normal voice. They hiked out to the road down to where they left the cart and made camp by the river pool at the falls and washed the earth and ash from the mushrooms and put them to soak in a pan of water. By the time he had had the fire going, it was dark, and he sliced a handful of mushrooms on a log for their dinner and scooped them into a frying pan. The boy watched his father, and then he said, 
This is a good place, Papa. And that's always struck me. I've read the book a number of times, and every time I read that, I'm just so moved that, that this boy could say that this is a good place. The world they live in is, is hopeless. Death seems imminent, yet this boy can say, this is a good place. Well, how can he say such a thing? It's because he's with his father. The father loved his son. The father would do anything to protect his son. And the son, as long as he's with his father, was in a good place. Now, what are we to do with this good place? When we consider the brokenness of our world, does this good place exist? Or even more closely and more intimate, when we consider the brokenness and the need in our own lives, does this good place exist? Can our posture really be one of confidence and hopeful dependence? We are riddled with anxiety, fear, shame, guilt, addiction, pride, greed, and so on. And while we can read this psalm, while we can listen to it sung and acknowledge its beauty and even its truth, it's hard for us to bridge the gap between our heads and our hearts. We long for this better place, this good place, and yet our hope oftentimes feels insufficient for our everyday, everyday realities. Or conversely, perhaps you're so sure of your independence, of your self-sufficiency, that the promise of refuge in this psalm is, is at best therapeutic or, or just nice, or at worst, unnecessary. And my hope this evening is that this psalm will meet us in these places and show us, the Christian and non-Christian alike, the immensity of God's provision, of His care for His children. We'll see that hope is not an unnecessary burden we have to drag through our lives, but something that finds its aim and its confidence in an event greater, far greater than the threats of our enemies and our erratic attempts at self-preservation. David, King David the psalmist here in Psalm 16, uh, is either writing in the midst of a crisis or from the perspective of being delivered from a crisis. Um, a lot of people have different, different opinions, um, but no one's really sure what the circumstance is uh, of, from which he's writing. But we know that, that crisis is at the center uh, of what's going on here. In either way, David's hope is sure. And I hope that we can leave here tonight uh, with a more secure hope. That if we felt hopeless, that we'll be reminded uh, that there is something greater. Uh, there is something more foundational to whether we feel it or not. And that this good place does exist. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather as a people and be reminded that you are God. And Lord, you are so gracious and so patient to draw us out of ourselves and to remind us that, that you are the God who is unchanging. And it is your word that is unchanging. It is your word that is sure, and it won't return void. Holy Spirit, uh, bring conviction, uh, even bring confrontation. But Lord, we ask that you would bring repentance and renewal and make much of Jesus. Amen. I want to look at the psalm in three sections tonight. In Psalm 16, we'll see that we have a better refuge, 
We have a beautiful place and an abiding hope. Almost got the uh, alliteration there. I guess if you took the A off abiding, you could just say biting. Um, But that sounds weird. So it still flows. Um, So a better refuge, a beautiful place, and an abiding hope. First, we have a better refuge. If you look at verses 1 through 4, it introduces us to two kinds of people. We have the true worshiper of God, and then we have um, what is called the syncretist. I know that's an unusual word, but the syncretist is the one who worships the God of Israel, or so they think, but they're also adding in some other gods and worshiping some other um, deities uh, of that time. Now, David doesn't spend a great deal of time focusing on the syncretist. But the snapshot that he does give reveals a remarkable contrast between the faithful and the self-reliant, or the kind of relying on God person. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in in whom is all my delight. When I began to study this passage, uh, I noticed that many of the commentators, the people that I was reading, differed on their interpretation of this verse. It's very interesting because I think for us we read it through and we think, oh, that's just about the holy ones. It's God's people. That is certainly one um, interpretation uh, that that the, uh, the saints, the excellent ones, are God's holy people. However, uh, there were others that who thought perhaps this is speaking more of the syncretist, that the saints and the excellent ones here are the cultural gods the people are looking to for comfort and provision. Now, regardless of how, how we see those things, uh, the contrast here remains. The true worshiper is the one whose delight is in the Lord, apart from which he has no good, verse 2. Whereas the syncretist seeks his good elsewhere, adding other things to satisfy the perceived deficiencies of the Lord and to create a God that suits him best. In other words, the one true God is treated as an accessory to our cultural preferences. And in seeking this kind of double protection, faith in God almost becomes irrelevant. In the end, we are attributing holy qualities, things that that only God himself uh, can really carry. We're attributing these qualities to the very things that will never fulfill or define us the way that the Lord can. And I think too often we assume that that our comfort, whether we're comfortable or um, seem like everything is going well, that, that that is the best indicator of our faith. When in reality, that very comfort could be the thing you worship could be the God in your life. And if that's the case, it's distracting you from what is true and from what you really need. We cling to our money, our ideologies, our sexuality, our politics, our sense of power because it gives us control. It makes us feel safe. And the last thing we want is a God who makes us feel out of control. But perhaps those moments where we feel out of control, where we can't understand what God's doing, maybe that's exactly what we need. Maybe that's the place where God really wants us. Because we're finally seeing that maybe God is enough. Maybe I don't need these things. Maybe they won't satisfy me the way that I think they will or I want them to. And this kind of 
holy chaos, if you will, is maybe um, the way that God wants to use us, the way that God wants to refine us. And I recognize that this kind of intimacy terrifies us, even when we know it's this kind of refinement that we need. Well, in contrast, we have the true worshiper who calls out these illusions of reverence. In fact, he uses very strong language uh, in verse 4, saying that he will not take their names upon his lips, that he's not going to participate uh, in their, uh, their drink offerings of blood. And I think we have to consider the seriousness of which he approaches these cultural practices. His concern is, is a distinctive religious identity, one that's rooted in the unhindered worship of God alone. Is this our attitude? Is this our posture? I think when we, we consider our own cultural landscape, uh, it's clear that, uh, that we are thoroughly religious. And I'm not just talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about everyone. That everyone around us is curating some kind of religious identity. One in which they're placing their hope and their purpose in something. Ours is a culture overflowing with the presence of political, economic, and communal gods. And yet our call as God's people is to be a distinctive community with a distinctive identity. But how different do we really look? How serious are we about, as the psalmist would say, about taking the names of these other gods on our lips? How serious are we of calling out the inadequacies of our misplaced reverence? We tirelessly pursue uh, what one uh, commentator calls a militant consumerism. We are narcissistic. We're money-loving, work-obsessed, people-pleasing, prideful people because we believe these things will satisfy and provide a safe enough refuge. Our temptation toward syncretism is strong and seemingly incessant. So what do we do? What's the application here? Well, I think first, as Robert talked about in the welcome, uh, if we are to be a, a distinctive community and have a distinctive religious identity, we have got to worship together. This is the time in our week where we are reminded of who we are as the people of God, that our identity is in Jesus, and that we come together when we confess our sin, we confess that we fall short. We also remember that we have a God who restores us and who reminds us of, of what it means to live as the people of God. So it is so crucial that we are gathering week in and week out to worship. And we place a high value on that. And we think in, in a very mysterious and powerful way that it, it does transform us. That this time is transformational. Secondly, I think the, the way to apply this is repentance. It's easy for us to read this psalm and, and just, you know, kind of skip over verse 4 and, and just think, oh, man, I, I'm verses, I'm pretty much everything else but verse 4. This is so beautiful. This is so poetic. And it's, it's okay to want that. But I think our desire and, and our, um, our aim of being a true worshiper begins when we confess that we are the enemy. And that's so often 
our, our posture. We place our hope in other things. We seek comfort elsewhere. And as it says, we often find our sorrows multiplied. And if we examine our hearts, if we're willing to go there, to have the courage to really go and examine our hearts, uh, we'll begin to recognize these things. And let me remind you that, that as we do this, that we have a God who calls us to come boldly to His throne of grace. And so the very things that, that we recognize in our own hearts, where we fall short, where we create all these other idols, uh, God doesn't want those things to drive us away from Him. He wants us to acknowledge them and come running to Him. To break the cycle of multiplied sorrows and reestablish our feet on the path of life. A path that leads us to a beautiful place. So we've talked about a better refuge. Talk about a beautiful place. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. How are we to understand this beautiful inheritance, this beautiful place? Well, in the ancient world, land was a status symbol, a means of generating wealth and sustaining life. And furthermore, the distribution of land among God's people is a theme that resonates throughout the Old Testament. The longing of God's people to thrive in the place He's prepared for them. But here, the psalmist is not speaking of the literal possession of land, but God Himself. And a, and a, a number of commentators that I read use the tribe of Le- the tribe of Levi, Levi. I'm sorry, to help us understand this. The Levites were given no land as their inheritance. But the tithes and the offerings of the land and the Lord himself were described as their portion. One commentator writes, To be born into a landless class might have been experienced as something far from a blessing. Ironically and powerfully then, the psalmist who has inherited no land and and thus no literal boundaries is able to confess the boundaries, or in our translation, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So the point here is that for him, the blessing, the inheritance, is God himself. As I thought about this, this, this whole idea of our, our boundaries, our, our place, I couldn't help but think about our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith, who may have little earthly wealth or inheritance, or those whose literal boundaries have been destroyed or seem to be ever-changing as they have to move from place to place just to be safe. I, I think about uh, the plight of my, minorities in our country. That injustice is still ever-present. and something that just does not seem to go away. And think about what is it like for them to think about this whole idea of inheritance. To think about Christ being enough. That even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of death, their hope is sure. For them, Christ has to be enough, and He is. And on the other side, perhaps we should lament our preference for safety and our dissatisfaction in Christ alone. And not really wanting to be okay with just God Himself. 
think the, the, the following verses give us some insight into how we might uh, think about this and apply this. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David's life here is so ordered that even as he is laying in bed at night, uh, he's thinking about who God is and what he's done. What's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing on your mind before you go to bed? Are you checking your email right away? Are you on uh, social media trying to kind of compare and see where you line up at the end of the day, the beginning of the day? That that really becomes your, your, uh, your starting point? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you, or are you thinking about what God has done? Are you looking back even uh, over just one day and taking the time and taking the energy to think about, God, where, where did I see you move today? God, where did I fall short today? And begin to go through that and think about those things. To think about, God, is, did I see you as enough today? Or was I trying to lay other boundaries? Is the beautiful place that you've laid out for me, of yourself, of intimacy with you, is that enough? In other words, is our life steeped in contemplation? In the simple rhythms of word and prayer, reading our Bible, praying. Are we structuring our life in such a way that the Lord is always before us? Uh, this past week I saw... A video, uh, it, was, it was a speech given by uh, a, a classical and religious music composer from Estonia. Um, anyone here from Estonia? Any, anyone? No? Okay. Um, his name is Arvo Part. Uh, and I know I'm not saying his, his last name right. It's spelled P-A-R-T, but it, I couldn't understand how to pronounce it. Um, on Wikipedia. Um, my whole sermon actually came from Wikipedia. Um, but in this video, it's a speech that he's giving at a seminary. The seminary had just given him a PhD, an honorary PhD. And uh, he's just ruminating on, on the arts and music and, and what it means to be creative. Um, and, and one thing that he said, I mean, there are a lot of things in it that were profound and beautiful. But one thing just really struck me. He said this. We shouldn't grieve because of writing little and poorly, but because we pray little and poorly and lukewarmly and live in the wrong way. The criterion must be everywhere and only humility. So we shouldn't grieve. We shouldn't grieve because we're not successful enough or haven't accomplished enough. We should grieve because we are far too independent. We should grieve that we are far too consumed with ourselves to notice how God is moving around us. And it's in this kind of humility which, uh, of which part speaks that redefines our hope, not as something that's fading or, or um, illusory. Is that, is that right? Illusion? Illusory? That's what I mean. Not as something that is fading, but enduring. So that brings us to our last point, an abiding hope. So we've talked about a better refuge, a beautiful place, and now an abiding hope. If you'll notice in your bulletins on page four, 
the New Testament reading from Acts 2. And notice that beginning in verse 25, uh, we have a section from Psalm 16. Now what's going on here? Well, contextually, in, 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 the, in Acts 2, this is a part of the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has come in power to establish the early, early church. And many were amazed and perplexed by, the, by these events. And so Peter stands up and begins to preach the person and work of Jesus and the urgency of repentance. He's proving from the Old Testament that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and then he gives Psalm 16 a messianic interpretation. Now when we look at Psalm 16, David is faced with the fear of death, but knows that God will not abandon him. But even a, as great a king as uh, King David was, he did eventually die. We see the longings of, God, the longings of God's people are evident throughout redemptive, a redemptive history. The longing for a king, the longing for a savior. And here Peter proclaims that the longing was not in King David. The longing was fulfilled in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to our understanding of Psalm 16 and how we define refuge and inheritance. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So ours is not a disembodied hope, but one that finds its aim in a person, in Christ Himself. As we saw above, our, our concern should be for God Himself. And what's beautiful about this, what is foundational to this, to our pursuit of the Lord, is that God gave Himself for us. He sent His Son to live perfectly, to die on a cross, to raise Him to life. And when we put our faith and our trust in this Jesus... We then uh, we enter in this, this beautiful reality of, of what we call union with Christ. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. He's not just outside of you somewhere. He is in you. We shouldn't fear death because he overcame death. Rankin Wilborn uh, in a book called Union with Christ, which is a book I would really commend to you. He says this, the phrases crucified with, raised with, buried with, seated with, all these things we find in Paul's writings, they're each a single word in Greek beginning with the prefix with. Now these words didn't exist before Paul coined them, but something so unique had happened that there were no words for it. A new vocabulary was necessary. It was the only way he could describe who, had be, who he had become because of Jesus. I think we need this new language. A language of identity, of union. A language that frees us from proving ourselves. And as Wilborn in his book says, when God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ. And this is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news. Well, I began with a picture of a father and a son on a road. 
a dark and dangerous road. And throughout the story, uh, we see this phrase coming up over and over again. It, it's, it's this phrase, carrying the fire. They're always talking about, are you carrying the fire? Are you going to carry the fire? And really, it's, it's a symbol of hope. And here's a brief uh, exchange between the father and son in my normal voice. We're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? Yes, we are. And nothing bad is going to happen to us? That's right, because we're carrying the fire. Yes, because we're carrying the fire. To be united to Christ is to have the spirit of Christ within us. A fire we carry with us in the most difficult of times. It's a fire that will not burn out. Uh, as I was finishing things up yesterday with my sermon, um, a lot of copying and pasting from Wikipedia, um, I, I noticed that the, the title of my sermon was uh, The Refuge of an Empty Tomb. Um, and as I thought about it, I thought perhaps, perhaps it's been misstated because the tomb is empty. Death could not hold the one who was laid there. So our refuge is not in the tomb itself. It's certainly a reminder of what God has done in, in history, throughout history. But our better refuge, our beautiful place, our abiding hope rests in the risen Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we confess that, that too often we are looking elsewhere. Uh, we would rather trust someone else or trust uh, our money or our skills uh, to get us through. But those things, Lord, can't remind us of, of who we are. They, they can't come close to giving us uh, what we have because we are uh, united with Christ. The Lord, give us rest in that. Give us hope. Give us the, uh, the courage to acknowledge that, that this is a good place because you are with us. And because of what you have done in and through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.